Hey guys, uh, welcome to today's episode. Now, I need to give you a bit of a warning because to, today we're going to get into it with uh, uh, former uh, doctor Robert Yoho, who is really talking about something pretty sensitive these days. Uh, a lot of us are concerned about healthcare, concerned about the impacts of COVID, and um, and he touches on a number of these things, including his concerns for the industry as a whole and how he believes that we might be uh, manipulated. Now, I've got to tell you, he gets a little deep into it and he references, he gives you his references so that you can go down that road. But this is not for the faint of heart. He, he really digs into the meat of uh, what he sees in this industry and the concerns that you and I should have uh, for our own healthcare, and um, you know, we're we're hoping that uh, you enjoy it, that you're able to take agency for your own healthcare. And uh, today's show, Doctor Retired Doctor Robert Yoho. Robert, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. So glad to have you. Uh, this this topic that we're going to be getting into, this conversation we're going to have is so important right now, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Neil, thanks for sharing your platform with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, so when when we had the opportunity uh, to have you on as a guest, I, I absolutely jumped at it because I thought here is, we're, we're in a space right now where people almost don't know what to what to listen to what to trust where where's the inf where there's an overdose of information coming at you that is really uh, throwing people in so many different directions and so I'm hoping that part of our conversation will get bring a little bit of clarity and give people just a little bit more to uh, to go down those threads and to be able to investigate for themselves because the reality is, is that I think there's so much noise that people don't know where to look anymore when we talk about healthcare, when we talk about the medical industry, when we talk about all of these things. So I, I really do appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Th thank you. And I have a little disclaimer, but uh, before I start with that, you've put your finger on the critical uh, element and I can explain why there's so much, uh, so many conflicting narratives. And I'll make that clear to your uh, listenership. Um, but the, here's the disclaimer. I'm forced to do this by, you know, the situation in America with our plaintiff's lawyers and everything. They sue for anything. But um, this should not be in, uh, regarded as, gen as uh, personal health care advice. If you have a medical problem, you need to go to a licensed provider. And I, I ha I'm forced to say something like this. Um, this is for informational and entertainment purposes only. So uh, I, I've spent four years uh, putting my material together and understand it well. And I believe in everything I say, and I've got uh, hundreds of, I've got 500 references each in each one of my books, but uh, sorry about the disclaimer. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate the disclaimer. I, I work in, in finance. We have to give disclaimers all the time about uh, what we're saying uh, professionally, what we're giving as personal advice, opinion, all of those things. So I, I actually appreciate you uh, giving that disclaimer. Uh, so what what I want to just start with and ask is, you you retired in 2019 from right. uh, a career in 
a cosmetic surgery, uh, and I believe you did some work as an ER doctor as well. But um, what has gotten you to after retiring? Why why uh, speak out in the medical profession? And almost why should people be listening to you, considering now that you're you're yeah. you're retired? Yeah. Well, the average doctor retires at sixty five, so I hit the averages um, precisely. But um, I'm like Rip Van Winkle. I woke up after, I mean, many, many decades of being asleep. And most doctors are asleep right now. Most of my friends and associates don't understand this material well, and it takes some effort to get it. Um, my personal story um, was that I was a cosmetic surgeon, and mm -hmm. I was an emergency physician before that. So I have a generalist background. But um, as a cosmetic surgeon, uh, my clients were mainly women. And towards the end of my career, they were mainly postmenopausal or post change of life women. And I wanted to help them. So I took training and I started prescribing bioidentical hormones. And as I learned more and more about this, I learned that the medical industry, namely the FDA working with uh, big pharma, trying to promote their um, uh, proprietary drugs had censured bioidentical hormones because for the most part, they can't be patented for big, big profits. So they produce fake stories about these things having horrendous problems such as heart disease, strokes, and so on. And they put them on the drugs as what, quote, black box warning, which is a big deal. It's a it's a serious warning placed on a drug post-market. And progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone are all labeled like this falsely. So it, it made me... Uh, uh, very curious about the situation. And I, I, can I got just pause into, you for one second, yeah. Robert. Can, can you just explain to us what a bioidentical hormone is? Yeah. A bioidentical hormone, uh, is an, I, a hormone that's the same as the human body, right? Okay. So they had these patented drugs like horse okay. urine, estrogen, right? Premarin and, uh, artificial progesterone, uh, uh Provera, uh, that, uh, were patented and were marketed heavily and are still being marketed heavily. It's, it's an unbelievable thing. But okay. since we studied and became conversant as a group with the bioidenticals, we understand that the problems with the synthetic or um, animal-derived products are significant. They're not, uh, th 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 these things are still very valuable and they can be used in a situation where you can't get the bioidentical, but the bioidentical hormones are, tremendously superior and almost harmless with a few uh, caveats. And they're, okay. they're very valuable. I mean, we've been using these things for a hundred years. Now I know that sounds like a stretch, but for thyroid, it's for porcine or pork thyroid, it's 120 years. For estrogen testosterone, uh, it's 90 years. So we have massive clinical experience, yet the pharmaceutical companies working with the FDA managed to run these things down, scare the hell out of everyone with a study that was partially faked called the women's health initiative which okay. maybe the more geeky geeked out uh geeked out listeners may have heard of that but i can i can get into that in a lot of detail if you want okay. but uh maybe uh that's yeah. for later we, we can we can yeah we can come back to that uh sorry i i just wanted to make sure that uh, we knew what you were talking about as you were telling your story about uh, how you got into that so uh thank you for for sharing that yeah please please tell, so tell us step, more step by step, I, I 
entered medical corruption and I became interested in it through the bioidentical hormone area. And I saw it there. And then I started looking at other fields and I progressively went through um, the problems with generic drugs, um, the problems with um, the insurance industry, the problems with many medical specialties. I mean, there, I thought I was opening a can of worms and I eventually found out that there was a dumpster full of worms and the entire medical industry, which is it costs us double per capita or per person what uh, France, England, Canada, Australia cost double. It's 20% of our gross domestic product is 10% of theirs. And so for this, we get a product that academically we know is 50% doesn't work or actually harmful. Now that's not academically controversial if you get into it. Um, fifty percent doesn't work in America, and you know, of course, it's always controversial which fifty percent it is. But um, but anyway, that's that's essentially where I, I got started, and I, I progressively went through all these fields, and we can chat about each one individually. But I think we've got a more burning issue uh, with the uh, you know COVID situation. Yeah. Well, I mean. Healthcare is always is one that people have been concerned about before the pandemic, and you, everyone always asks the question: Why? Why do you have um, ads for for all sorts of drugs during a football game? Right. Um, Only two countries being... in the world allow direct to consumer advertising: New Zealand and the United States. And these are universally regarded by almost everyone as. Uh, you know, harmful, but mm -hmm. they, they sort of crept in, um, 20 years ago or so, and they were allowed to be promulgated by the enormous lobby interests. You have mm -hmm. to understand that these, uh, healthcare lobbyists are by far the most powerful lobby in Congress because, you know, healthcare is 20% of a gross domestic product. So it's as large roughly as the entire federal government. So they are by far the most influential lobbyists and they, they bribe or buy these politicians to do whatever they 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 want, and the last twenty years have seen a tremendous decline in our our healthcare and our our system because it's really gotten out much more out of hand progressively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me because we're we are in a pandemic. Um, let me ask the question: we we know that there is some truth to the virus. I mean, people have gotten it. They've all said that it's it's more severe, but the but what we're everyone's trying to figure out is it doesn't seem like there is the severity. So why are we going to these lengths? Can are you able to help us understand why we go to the lengths that we're going to? Neil, you're you want me to skip to the punchline, <laughs> and I want to set up. I want to set up the question better uh, okay. by explaining how the money goes around. So okay, you know, yeah. Well, so I listen. That that's a great question because that that was actually the question that I had was who stands to profit. But I thought maybe we should ask about <laughs> um, wh what what this is from a layman's standpoint. You know, I don't really see the virus to the degree that. Uh, it's being it's being talked about, mandated. And there's a difference I'm getting from what doctors are saying and what the politicians are saying. And so I really have no idea what what, what to even ask on that front. Well, let, I mean, 
I could give you a short answer to that, but let me set it up because yeah, um, your listeners please. have varying uh, degrees of sophistication. And this may be, yeah. if, if, they, if these uh, people have been listening to uh, McCullough and the other uh, uh, doctors, maybe they'll understand this, but I, I have to set it up. Otherwise, the, the ones that are more naive won't, won't believe me. So, okay. so anyway, um, let me just tell you a little bit more about the size of healthcare and compare it to a few things. Okay. So... Uh, Apple and Google together have a larger total value market cap than the U.S. federal government spending. Okay, mm -hmm. so their their power is fantastic, and their recent influence flexing uh, sort of demonstrates that. Um, Fifty to seventy percent of U.S. citizens have been convinced to take prescription drugs, depending on the the reference. Big Pharma's worldwide gross revenues are one point three trillion. And 40% of its revenues and 75% of its profits are from the U.S. So they've, they're, they're focusing on us, us more than anyone, anywhere else. So these corporations violate more criminal laws than any industry in history as measured by their settlements with U.S. federal prosecutors. Anyone, any of your listeners can Google um, uh, pharmaceutical company settlements and they'll go to a Wikipedia page of shame where they show the top 22 drug makers payoffs. And, and these guys, these guys pay billions of dollars every year to the prosecutors to, they never admit a thing. And this is the compromise that's been, been, been raised. Um, there's a book about these prosecutors called the, the chicken shit club, right? If you want to read about why they haven't dismantled these companies because the close observers say that one of these companies that, that was completely ruined, their, their CEO is put in jail and their completely dismantled would send a message, but they were, they've been unable to do this because it's just not in the structure of our, of our relationships with corporations that are this wealthy. So here's a quote from Peter Ross, who was a former Pfizer marketing vice president. He compared the drug makers to mobsters. It's scary how many similarities there are between this industry and the mob. Obscene amounts of money, killings and deaths, bribing of politicians and others. The difference is all these people in the drug industry look upon themselves as law-abiding citizens. However, when they get together as a group, it's almost like when, we, when you have war atrocities. People do things that they don't think they're capable of because the group can validate what you're doing is okay. That's from his book, The Whistleblower, and that's at least 10 years old. So the attitude of these guys, I'm talking about pharmaceutical companies, people, towards the doctors and the rest of us is exemplified in another quote from a CEO of another company, Harry Loyne, who said, who was responsible for promoting chloramphenicol, despite the fact that that antibiotic killed many children with aplastic anemia. He said, if we put horse manure in a capsule, we could sell it to 95% of these doctors. So that's their contempt for the intellectual uh, material that surrounds medicine. So he only stopped promoting that drug after it went off patent and became less profitable. So the FDA is another part of this puzzle, right? How could the FDA, which is a agency, which historically has prevented drug disasters. I mean, they, they've done wonderful things 25 or 30 years, 25 years ago. So what has happened is the FDA has been entirely a creature of pharma since the early 2000s when their over half of their fees began to be paid by 
user fees billed during the patent process. So they became, they started to regard the pharmaceutical companies as clients rather than entities to be regulated. And now if the FDA refuses to approve a drug, sometimes they may not even be able to make payroll. So these guys are completely unreliable. Over half the revenues come straight from pharma. They basically are a lackey in pharma's marketing department. So it gets worse. And each story I'm going to tell you is a little bit worse than the last. The FDA and pharma, they work together to shamelessly fake the studies that are required for drug patents. Um, Peter Gercha has a quote. He says, the pervasive scientific misconduct has led to a research literature where one has to dig deeply to find the few gems among all the garbage. And what he's referring to is statistical manipulation, hiding studies that don't pr promote the drug marketing, mm -hmm. use of contract research groups in other countries, and many other frauds. So if recently, a British medical journal editorial in late July was entitled Time to Assume that Health Research is Fraudulent Until Proven Otherwise. That was the title of the, the mm -hmm. BMJ. BMJ seems to be the last journal that has some integrity. So these journals are almost entirely in the service of the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry also. 95% mm -hmm. of their articles are ghostwritten by industry contractors. So they say whatever they want. They, the journal editors who should be the ultimate scientific referees are paid tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year each for their service to industry. And I mean, it's, it's so Cicero said, nothing is so strongly fortified that it cannot be taken with money. And so these academics, they're only human. They mm -hmm. basically are shilling for their paymasters. So the, the way they get around all this, supposedly, is they declare conflicts of interest. And what that means is at the end of a paper, they'll put their names and say, well, you know, Pfizer paid me this and the other company paid me that. And that was supposed to cleanse the uh, filth from the process. But it doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and here's an example. Hospitalization rate was absent in many of the COVID vaccine reports, right? It's the most, it's second most vital metric after fatalities. So one of my brilliant friends read every single available study and he said, you know, he says, Robert, I think that the vaccine works, but I can't be sure because I don't have the data. So I prefer another interpretation, which is I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on, I can't believe you. Right. But the, we've been lied to over and over again by these companies and their criminal settlements attest to that. So some are still convinced that the vaccines are do, do save lives. But we do know for sure, sure that they uh, they cause many fatalities. And the only database that we have is called the Vaccine Adverse event reporting system, the VAERS, the listeners may have heard of that. So we're at about 17,000 documented fatalities now in the U.S. and any other vaccine would have been thrown out after 50. So, and this VAERS is thought to be underreported for fatalities by a factor of three, which it takes 45 minutes to fill out this form. Nobody reimburses you for doing it. The doctors are supposed to do it, but there's definitely underreporting and some other other people have estimated that the underreporting for the complications is by a factor of 100. So and that sounds like too much, but it's certainly for the fatalities. But so if you let me go on for another minute, Neil, I can tell you about my COVID story. OK, yeah, please do. OK, so I was trapped out of the country in another country with locked borders. Right. And I heard yeah. this thing um, that the vaccine 
had 90% efficacy. So I, I had been studying medical corruption for four years, three years at that mm -hmm. point. And I understood that these guys hadn't produced anything worth a damn in 20 years, right? The flu vaccine is a complete failure, as far as I can tell. And your listeners can go to Cochrane Reviews, C-O-C-R-A-N-E Reviews, which is the most respected source in medicine, and read the meta-analyses of the flu vaccine studies. And for something that's cost us collectively over $100 billion, I mean, it's total nonsense. It does almost nothing. And mm -hmm. the HPV vaccine, which you're probably familiar with, the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is universally given to Americans and and Europeans in their childhood, right? It's supposed to prevent mm -hmm. cervical cancer. Well, the Japanese looked at the data, and when they realized that 50% of the studies had been concealed, pharma is allowed to do this because they theoretically own the studies, even though they're paid with our healthcare money, they conceal the studies, and that 50% were, were concealed. So, you know, my interpretation of that was if you conceal the studies, it's obvious nonsense. So HPV vaccine, if it works, there's something rotten in the air. So, so getting COVID confers lasting and permanent immunity, even for the new variants of the, of the uh, vaccine, but it doesn't prevent the disease. So <laughs> here's another quick story before you ask me more questions. Rather than rename this concoction the unvaccine, the authorities changed the definition of a vaccine. So it only seems to confer a limited decrease in disease activity for two to four months. That's it. So this thing is the most profitable medication in history. If you believe that marketing hype, it has to be given to every single person in the world three to four to five times. I mean, who knows? It's it's this year seems like the total gross revenues are in the hundred billion uh, category, which is more than the gross revenues of any single pharma company. You know, Johnson and Johnson's probably the biggest, or maybe Pfizer. They vie for the top spot. It's there's something like 60 billion a year. So there's a there's a worse story that I can go, get into, or you can stop and ask me questions. The worst story <laughs> is yet to come. I mean, it's it's worse. And it goes to your initial question. Mm hmm. Well, I uh, there's there's so many questions that could be asked off of what you said. Uh, personally, the, the thing that jumps to my mind is, you know, there's just quite frankly, a certain amount of fatigue. Uh, we hear these things and and we almost uh, throw up our hands and say, what, what do you do? Can you do anything? I mean, it really looks like they have found a way to uh literally to mandate their their profits yeah so how do, i'm almost how, like that, i i don't even i'm see almost how, to that point is how yeah. what what is going on with these false na narratives so yeah. the reason for these false narratives is that we have inexpensive proven treatments for viral illnesses that turned out they also worked very well for covid Right. This disease is really almost nothing to worry about for anybody who's healthy and not morbidly obese right. and not 90 years old if you have access to the proper early treatments, right? right. These are the, some of the safest drugs ever invented. Billions of doses have been used for humans. And I was only convinced completely, I was only completely red-pilled myself about three months ago when I realized that 80 to 85% of the fatalities could have been prevented. I mean, just wrap your head around that. It's millions of people worldwide. In the U.S. alone, 
we have 700,000 people roughly who've died of this illness by early October, and more than 500,000 might have been saved by these simple medications. They're completely non-toxic. So the blood was on the hands of those concealing the therapies to sell the vaccine. Now you ask yourself, why would they do that? <clears throat> and the problem is that it's illegal to market an experimental treatment if there are adequate therapies, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's part of the thing. So I'm going to answer your question you asked me at the very beginning of the podcast. Why, why are we seeing all these stories? And what, yeah. what is the deal with the narrative, right? So hydroxychloroquine and more recently ivermectin were defamed by thousands of fake stories, studies, and videos that claimed they were harmful. We know that. But the thing that most people don't understand is that this is business as usual for big pharma. They've been doing this for decades. And I read these studies. A, re a moderately sophisticated observer can see the holes in these studies. For example, I read thyroid studies that claimed that the synthetic thyroid, which was patented, levothyroxine, was superior to the porcine thyroid that we've used for 120 years. It's just not true. And the reason why the studies showed what they purported to show was they used doses of the porcine thyroid that were a quarter of what they should have been. That's only one tiny corner of the study fraud. So we've, we've seen tens of thousands, if not more fake stories that ratify this crazy narrative that we have no treatment for a disease and only have access to this experimental, tremendously profitable vaccine, quote vaccine. Mm -hmm. So Google, you know, Google's original motto was do no evil. They changed it. <laughs> and YouTube and Google are the center of the of the mm. censoring cabal. I mean, it's amazing. So yeah. pharma, of course, has a powerful motive to pay these media giants. Our federal programs. And they basically change truth to lies. <clears throat> I think it was Stalin that said that a truth repeated often enough, a lie repeated often enough becomes a truth, right? Repetition legitimatizes. And so... You know, the, the, the these companies are abetting fraud and they're so deep in the atrocity that if they back down, I don't think anybody thought that they were going to kill 500,000 people in America by now. I don't think that they, but they're almost indifferent to it and they're so deep in the fraud that if they back off, it would be akin to slitting their own throats because I mean, in a, in a, a reasonable court, they would, they would sentence these guys to prison the rest of their lives or knock them off, you know? Oh, it's wow. freaking horrible. I mean, it's worse <laughs> than people understand. Right. Right. Well, you know, I I'm I don't consider myself an optimist or a, a pessimist. Um, I do consider myself very much a realist. And so the what you're saying does not sound out of the realm of possibility. Right. Uh, I unfortunately, because of what we've seen in business, we we saw this in 2008 with uh, everything with the financial crisis, with that meltdown, we saw how many uh, places were in collusion, how many conflicts of interest there were. And we barely, we all know that we barely scratched the surface in that area. So it's not hard to see that this could, that this could be there. What we're seeing and we're trying to, I'm trying to wrap my mind around is. It's hard. Is on a global scale, 
how has this been possible on a global scale to be able to it's it's one thing to uh, fool some of the people yeah some of the time they literally have all of the people at this point we're and we're now talking about booster shots too right like it's outrageous kids that are five years and under they want them to get shots i mean um you know can you speak to how this is developing how this is developed across the planet as opposed to just the u.s so or canada for your canada's a mess Canada is only second. Canada is the point of the spear of this stuff. If if Australia is worse, but Canada seems to be a mess. So this thing, the best single reference, and your your listeners who are naive are going to have to go through my my references and the show notes and uh, talk about them. It's going to take them days to figure it out. And to, uh, for me, for what I say to achieve credibility, and the best single reference to skip to the very end is a book. Uh, by Peter Bregan named Global Predators. And in a, in a month, that thing sold 40,000 books already. Amazon uh, doesn't seem to censor books. Uh, so it's, it's available on Amazon. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, all the different players here have something to gain, right? We've got the journalists. I never had any respect for journalists. Uh, you know, I guess we're, you and I are journalists now. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> but but I, they gutlessly mirror whatever's going on and they sell advertising by taking, uh, uh, you know, advantage of controversy and anxiety. The politicians have used and magnified, you know, they wanted to get rid of Trump. So this is, seems to have been in, introduced to as part of that. Um, the, the, there's the stuff is unquestionably manufactured in a lab and unquestionably was the policy of the Chinese Communist Party, because we have uh, eyewitness accounts, plus a lot of other data that uh, proves that. And you're going to have to go through the links to understand it. But a simple proof is a Chinese defector eyewitness named Li Min Yang, who's a physician and a Ph.D., She's a virologist who spoke on October 1st at the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons meeting. And she worked in labs where the virus was created by scientists working for the Chinese Communist Party in collaboration with Fauci's groups in the U.S. I mean, it's just fantastical story. You, it just sounds like a total crazy story, but it, it, it's heavily documented. So the disease was first released on their own people and the doctors were forbidden to treat their patients or protect themselves or their families from being infected. And it's part of a policy that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party's regards as unrestricted warfare against the rest of the world. And so the our media, our politicians, it seems like the entire Democratic Party has been sort of taken over by these forces and um, they're cooperating with this agenda, uh, seemingly to, uh, along with, <laughs> along with a few billionaires. And these guys have been publicizing their exact intent for, uh, uh, almost a decade. And so what, what's happening now matches up with the conferences they've had and the things they've said, which is on the internet, which you can read about in, uh, global predators by Bregan. And so we're not at the end of all this. I mean, we, we must expect to be attacked again and we must mm. stand up because we are being cannibalized. Wow. Please say more about that. So can't you, you can't just drop a statement like that and, uh, 
and not uh, follow that up some more. Well, any any acute observer understands what's going on in America. I mean, there we we and Canada is certainly worse. I mean, the we basically abrogated in, in America. We've we've destroyed or not uh, ta- taken out um, all but one of the amendments in the Bill of Rights, right? Second Amendment doesn't seem to be hassled. But every other one, the free speech is getting destroyed. The right to trial is getting destroyed. I mean, it's just, it's one after the other. And in my show notes, I have a speech by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is standing out at great personal destruction to his relationships and everything else, standing up. And he tells, he's a, a constitutional lawyer, and he he talks about how how all this stuff's happening so so that's that's another uh, a link that everyone should examine you should mm-hmm. your listeners should know about peter mccullough who is the um foremost academic who's um talking about these um uh these treatments and how they work and i didn't fully get it he's he's written over 600 academic papers he's one of the most respected academics in the country the uh, his 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 uh, institution Baylor has separated themselves from him now uh, because they're part of the freaking uh, insanity. Uh, but uh, but everyone should try to get through a couple of his videos where he des- he describes the dangers of the vaccine and the situation with the treatments that are being de- there these treatment deniers. Um, so there is an online treatment resource and legal help available at aapsonline.org. Uh, and Truth for Health is also good. America's frontline doctors, anyone in America can get these treatments for themselves within 24 hours. If you get sick or you think you might get sick, you can get ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because doctors in other states can prescribe the non, uh, uh, you know, the non-narcotic drugs out of state. You can get prescriptions, then you have to go to your pharmacy and get ripped off for these generic drugs that cause, should cost pennies. The other thing that seems to be not prosecuted but is in a questionable uh, legal uh, thing is you can go to you can get online buy buy these things in India, and it takes a few weeks for them to be shipped. So my uh, you know I don't give advice, but if it were me, and I've certainly done this, I have these drugs in my possession. I haven't had COVID or the vaccine because I've been relatively isolated. But uh, every everyone's going to get COVID, and you should be prepared to treat yourself if you if you get sick. A lot of people aren't even going to get sick if you keep your vitamin D levels up. Um, in other words, uh, you know, take a reasonable dose as as you can read on the um, online treatment resource that I just uh, referred to, and you should have in your um, in your show notes. If you keep your vitamin D levels up, the chances of problems are very slender. Um, in fact. Uh, we have this study in Scandinavia, and the the people with D levels above 60, 60 to 100, had almost you know their fatality level, their serious disease level, all that stuff was tremendously lower. Now that doesn't prove precisely that taking D will will uh, prevent it, but it's very suggestive. So we have huge studies on D. It's almost free. It's cheap. You can buy it anywhere. You can get get it at Costco here, um, and. Uh, so people over 200 pounds probably should take, uh, and this, again, this isn't advice. Um, you need to confirm yeah. this with your provider, but uh, it's roughly 10,000 international units for people over 200 pounds, under 200 pounds, 5,000. And that rarely causes any problems. You can follow up with a level, costs about 50 bucks. You can get that from 
um, a place in Florida that does it without a prescription uh, called lifeextension.com. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, and they'll have it drawn at a local uh, blood lab. So, I admit, uh, Neil, that I don't read as much as I should or as much as I did. I listen to podcasts. So, Peter Bregan's podcast and more, and Robert. F. Kennedy Jr.'s podcasts are tremendous and they're up to date. They'll tell you, your listeners, exactly what's going on. So let, let me ask this question then. Because we're, we're talking about the amount of corruption in the industry, because we're talking about by perpetrated by the pharmaceuticals and um, due to the, uh, you know, just lack of care by by uh, the government, how do we as people, as citizens of our country, how do we, how do we just trust in, the, here we've got this, the doctors that we're supposed to go to, and they're supposed to take care of us, and they're supposed to give us insight. How do you navigate that yeah, as an everyday, question. as an everyday person? Okay. <clears throat> how do you, how do you navigate healthcare for yourself? That's forget it. Forget about yeah. the pandemic. Just that's right. Regular everyday stuff. So for, for COVID, you are going to have to learn this yourself and you have to go through these links and understand it. And you have to, uh, you have to know the treatments <clears throat> in many places in the world. Doctors lose their license for prescribing ivermectin in Australia. That's happened. It's, Ivermectin has been given to billions of people worldwide, B billions, like 7 billion. That's one estimate I heard. And it's, it's tremendously safe. And, you know, it's, it's prescribed off label. In other words, uh, on label drugs are specifically approved for an indication off label is probably half of all prescribing. In other words, we prescribe, uh, uh you know, you know, all kinds of things that are, are not specifically. Okay. So, um, how do you trust your doctor? You can't trust him for this. Okay. You're going to have to figure this out on your own, but for other things, you have to trust them. I mean, these guys have a lot of training. They should be respected. And I don't want to imply that we don't do miracles. We do miracles every day in, in healthcare. And the, the technology is incredible in some cases. Um, but there are many, many, uh, problems with it. And, I suggest to understand it better. I'm going to put my pitch in for butchered by healthcare. This yeah. thing is like a little textbook. It's written down to a reasonable uh, grade level writing so you can understand it. Um, but it's, uh, it's got 500 references. So you can dive as deep as you want with it. But the answer to your question is that you almost need physician level expertise to navigate healthcare these days. And mm. you have to do a lot of research and uh, do your best to become as knowledgeable as possible. Um, there are some good things that have happened. There's two good things that have happened. Uh, you know, I, I have to, I have to come up with a, a positive uh, note here. First of all, you can get into your patient. Um, if you have an unusual, if you don't have a, if you're young, you'll rarely need healthcare. And a lot of it is pure nonsense, like prophylaxing a disease that doesn't it doesn't have any uh, impact on you when you're five years old. That's an outrageous imposition. And it, you know, the, the vaccine is dangerous. I mean, it has, it has all these fatalities and all these problems. And so how do you trust your doctor? That's, that's the question. And you, yeah. you've got to research and the two things that we have 
first is we have our patient groups, right? Online patient groups. So if you have an unusual problem, you have a kind of a cancer or something else, you can get into these groups and you'll find people that know as much as the doctors in the groups who are willing to help you for free. And so you still have to do your research and understand it yourself. Um, another thing that will help is if you have a friend who's a doctor or a provider, you may be able to convince them to get involved with your care and help you navigate the thing. So um, let's see, what's the other thing? We've got our, our patient uh, groups. And oh, the other thing is online consultations. We never had that before. Uh, last year, Trump uh, gave an executive order that said all the doctors can do online consultations at their uh, at their will. That That's why these guys are able to treat you for COVID without a, quote, good faith medical exam. Prior to this, the medical boards of individual states would censure the doctors. These are very aggressive organizations. They would censure doctors for not doing an in-person medical exam. Well, Trump said because of the pandemic um, that this was reasonable, and I believe it's persisted under Biden. Um, so you you can you can do consultations with the best doctors you can find. Now, the doctors have been burning down the trust that we built in our patients over hundreds of years to millennia. And who trusts these guys anymore? I mean, you you've got to you got to trust but verify now. And this this COVID thing is so freaking bad that you have to learn that yourself, and it's not difficult. The the uh, the AAPS online guide you can download that you can understand it in a, a couple of minutes. Um, what you should do, and uh, for the most part, you don't do anything if you don't get sick. If you get a little sick, <clears throat> if you get a little sick, then you go ahead with those medicines, and they prevent you getting really sick unless you are tremendously elderly or tremendously obese yeah. or have yeah. another medical problem. Yeah, yeah, I. <laughs> I I have um, when it comes to medical care, I have had difficulty with that for decades, to be honest with you, mainly because I, I remember one time I had, I had a problem with my shoulder and I said to the doctor, I was like, you know, I, I don't know, I'm got this issue. And the doctor said, well, what are you doing? Uh, I said, well, you know, I'm working out and I'm noticing it when I'm working out. <laughs> and uh and the response was okay stop well, working out uh, stop working out and here's a prescription yeah and what? i was like i the pain is not so unbearable that that i need a prescription for starters but i'm and i if i stop working out what happens to my overall health so can you give me a little bit more but that was that was it just stop doing that. Hopefully everything takes care of itself. And I thought, well, I could have given myself that, that diagnosis. And uh, and it just seemed like every time I would go in, it was they're going to prescribe something to the point that I thought, OK, clearly I'm looking for other people that are going to be able to to help me with my overall health, because the the jump to prescriptions, I've noticed it in my lifetime from doctors that used to prescribe, hey, try a different uh, way of exercising or this kind of stuff to it. It's like the the pad comes out immediately. And now it's electronic, so they don't even need to write it out anymore. It, it It's a crazy scene. And these guys have a tremendous amount on their backs. Um, the uh, Obamacare uh, foisted medical records, electronic medical records on them. Um, that You would think that's a good idea. It all seemed like it seemed like the time had come to every single observer, including me. But now 
25 to 50% of the doctor's time in America is spent clicking in on a computer to attempt to get paid and documenting all this crazy stuff. And the, uh, the insurance companies, of course, make it more and more draconian because their interest is trying to control it. And they, you know, they're, they're not very good at controlling it. Um, but, uh, they're trying, we might go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I've got, I've got friends that are doctors <laughs> across this country uh, that uh, I love very much. And I, and I would say that uh, for most of them that I know, their heart is really there to they're try trying. to give the, yeah, they're, they're idealistic. trying, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're trying to give the best care they can. Um, and I would say at the same time, there are, you talked about it when we started uh, being asleep, uh, you know, being asleep at the Rip wheel Van almost. Yeah. Rip Van Winkle, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think uh, it, you can almost see that when some doctors get to a point where, you know what, I'm just going uh, to I'm just going to pull back, do what I have to do and and carry on. How does that happen for a doctor? <laughs> because don't they all get into it? with the best of intentions of helping people and to really uh, doing good in this world? Of course. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of one specialty and uh, the example of the pressures that are brought to bear on these guys to... So remember, Cicero, nothing is so strongly fortified that it cannot be taken with money, right? Mm -hmm. So people underestimate what money can do to a professional. And of course, I had a conflict of interest. People paid me $5,000 to pop the implants in, in or whatever it was. And um, I had a, and I may have deceived myself that I never oversold a, uh, a cosmetic surgery procedure and left it up to the patient, right? Try to explain it all. But I'm going to give you an example of a specialty that's overwhelmed by the money, right? And it's oncology, cancer therapy. Now, these guys have a very difficult job and they yeah. uh, face issues of death and dying. They have faced diseases that are not uh, very amenable to treatment. And, but um, they are more, they are the second most overwhelmed therapist specialty by the money because they, in America, well over half of their income is from retailing chemotherapy drugs that cost $100,000 a year each. So if they get somebody into one of these therapy, and sometimes they're $500,000 a year each, they're paid by insurance and they get paid 20% off the top, right? So they have this, the conflict of interest is amazing. And they, they their whole income is putting people in these Barca loungers in a big room and running IVs into them at the behest of the, the, the studies and the, the, the studies are terrible. I mean, we have gotten to the point where we approve drugs, not for better survival, but for decrease in tumor size, which is considered a surrogate outcome. It's a surrogate for fatality or, you know, it's like the, it's like all the drugs that were approved for change in cholesterol. It's, it's not, it's not improved mortality. It's decreased cholesterol. We use that as an endpoint for the studies. The FDA rubber stamped them, right? So these guys, the story gets worse. They are often, they are often rewarded by the milligram. So the, in theory, the drug rep can call up the doctor at the end of the month and it says, you got two more days. You're at 2,200 milligrams of XYZ chemotherapy agent. If you get another 250 milligrams, we'll give you the bonus, right? So it's, it's a horrific conflict of interest. Nobody can survive this. There's no one that is, is able to 
separate their interests when the financial interests are so so incredibly powerful. And the the punchline to the oncologist story is that they only have about five diseases they can cure: lymphoma, leukemia, testicular cancer, a few others, right? The rest of it, the average improvement in survival, which is really the only thing you give a rat's backside about, is two months, right? So the whole thing, and it's not even clear to me that they incorporate the fatalities due to the chemotherapy with the, you know, the, their studies of the drugs. So, I, I mean, this is probably the second worst specialty, <laughs> you know, and wow. they're, they're trying hard. They're idealists. And they all wrote the, the yeah. same essay in medical school that I did about how we wanted to save people and, and put the patient first. But yeah. the industrial, industrialized medicine, the, particularly the hospital systems and the uh, pharmaceutical companies and the device companies have, are agnostic about patient harm. They're not, they're not trying to kill anybody, but they, if, if it right. happens and they still make money, it, it doesn't matter. Right. Well, interestingly, I, uh, my, my wife, uh, was in pediatrics in oncology, nephrology, uh, when I, when I met her. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, I remember that I loved was that she would be there with these kids and just her care, uh, for these kids trying to help them out, uh, you know, as they're regrowing the hair, she'd braid their hair, little things that, yeah. you know, give you. Now, one of the things that I remember learning, obviously, uh, with her being in that field, one of the things that I learned was how the success rate with kids, how much greater that was versus adults, because, of course, a child's immune system is so much stronger. Um, but as as we've as I've gone along and she's changed fields and and continued, you know, I've watched that industry. And there's there's actually one thing that if I could ask just your opinion, because I know that you're not uh, you're not saying that you're that this is an area of your specialization. But I'm curious the when when they find a tumor, when they find something uh, suspicious it's normally our practice to go in and do a biopsy. Let's go in and go see what it is. And, and I've always wondered. You just got cut off. I missed that. Oh, Repeat that, please. Okay. So saying one of the things, our procedures, normal procedures, when, when they find something and, they're, and they'll say, well, we don't know what it is. It's some type of tumor. We think it could be cancerous. We're going to do a biopsy. We're going to go in, poke a hole into it and take something of it out. And, uh, I, this is just personal, just a personal question. That always seems odd to me because wouldn't you want to keep, if it's in a little package, wouldn't you want to keep it closed and just take the whole thing out? Is that, well, <clears throat> I don't know. We're, we're getting You're into right. a, No, that's a okay. We're in the weeds here, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's all right. I can give you a rough idea about that. As just I understand pure it, again, curiosity. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't, I didn't treat cancer and, but yeah. I understood uh, the general outline of the, the, the question you're asking. And as I understand it, for the most part, um, the chance of spreading and we have, they, the, the cancer doctors, in order to make any kind of rational decision, they have to examine the, the specimen, you know, have the pathologist examine the speci mm. specimen microscopically so they can get a precise diagnosis. And as crude as cancer care therapy is, they have some chance of producing uh, and affecting a, a good outcome if they know exactly what the heck it is. Mm. 
Okay. Okay. So thank you for, for just indulging sure. me there. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay. So, so now let's, let's put the pandemic aside for a moment, just because, you know, there, there's a lot there you, because I know that your body of work is so much greater than that. And you've talked about, um, you know, your book, uh, butchered by healthcare. Um, you, you talk about so much more than just that. For instance, in the area of just general fitness, you know, we, I know that there is always this challenge between, um, you know, natural remedies or natural agents versus um, drugs. Uh, so if we put the pandemic aside and we're just talking about general health, I'm a 47 year old man trying to stay in good health and, uh, you know, one day they're saying, hey, everybody should take aspirin because uh, it'll help you from uh, stop you from getting a heart attack. And then they're then they start looking at it and going, mm, actually, maybe that might not be a how do, how do we make sense of our just our general health? OK, so uh, let me just address that aspirin issue, because I do know about that. And yeah. the answer to that question is um, it's a break even at best if you have not had a heart attack already. Right. A, a quarter aspirin a day or whatever it is, a many dose yeah. aspirin, because in, in rare cases, it does produce some bleeding and some problems, uh, yeah. but uh, it might it might help prevent problems, but it doesn't become a net benefit. And the benefit's very small with someone who's had a heart attack. It may be an improvement in outcomes of one in a hundred or two in a hundred or something like that. They, they, we, we take drugs for, for benefits that are much smaller than people uh, would understand. So um, uh, let me uh, back up and ask me the question again, just so you well, reset well, me. Le wait, let me let me just ask you one other part about that because because we we've got these uh, we're we're prescribed you know take this take that okay and don't take you know you can't trust the natural stuff. I, I'm originally East Indian. My family's from India, where they believe heavily in natural remedies, almost too much so. Um, but, but we know there's some sort of balance, but it seems like over here in the West, there is no balance. If you're doing anything natural, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're cuckoo and, uh, you need to stay on this side. A again, are we back to the battle of big pharma? Okay. So there, the big pharma does have a role in this. Um, but I must do a, uh, like a disclaimer and that is yes. that just, just because, um, there are problems in aircraft design. That does not mean that magic carpets fly. <laughs> Just because there's a problem in aircraft design, that does not mean magic carpets fly. And so the, the vast majority of things that are considered alternatives uh, would probably not be borne out in placebo-controlled trials, right? Which are the, mm. the, the quote, science now, although these things are adulterated by the big pharmas to, to pass through drugs that don't work or maybe have more harm than good. But and the other caveat I would say is that there are things that they don't look at because they can't be patented. For example, there are drugs related to ivermectin, which are antiparasitic drugs that have anecdotally been shown to be greatly helpful for cancer. And they are the pharmaceutical companies or company uh, is uh, attempting to duplicate this thing in a similar way so they can patent a slightly different molecule. So there are, we only, we don't look under the 
the knowledge tree these days. We look under the money tree, right? So these things aren't um, these things aren't publicized. And um, but I think casting around in the um, um, in the quote natural or uh, homeopathic space uh, for solutions is not as productive as trying to figure out what's going on with uh, the traditional uh, things. If you have a problem, uh, maybe you go there at the end, uh, but uh, I, I would certainly suggest uh, looking for the miracles that we have. And there are plenty of miracles, let me tell you, um, but it's just that half of it, it doesn't work and you have to figure mm -hmm. out which half doesn't work. And there are many, many articles saying half of it doesn't work. This is not some freaking idea that I came yeah. up with. Well, I, I think that one of the things that we can look at is, first of all, each each one of us is a little bit different. And each one of us, um, something might work here and something might not work here. I, we, we know so little about, as much as we know about the human body, we know so little about it, right? Like uh, I've, I've heard this discussion even when it comes to, they talk about uh, artificial intelligence and everyone's sure that the computers are about to take over. Meanwhile, we know so little about a single cell that uh, it's amazing that they're, that they're into these conversations. Now, let me ask, let me, let me switch a little bit now. Okay. We've, we agree that there is a clear issue when it comes to the money tree, where the money is going in the, in healthcare. So if you were able to redesign this, if you were able to do something about it, if someone actually turned and said, Robert, all right, okay, we're going to put you in charge of the, you know, Trump gets back into power. He says, Robert, I want you to come in and I want you to head up this task force and I want you to actually start making some changes to how this system should be or could be. What what kind of things would you say yeah. would, could could benefit us? Could benefit us? I know that we're talking about a uh, hundred years of bureaucracy, but you know what what uh, what are some things that could really benefit us, the citizens, the people, when it comes to uh, the healthcare sector? Well, that's that that's the question, and. Uh, you know, I spent years working on this material, trying to come up with something at the end of the book that'd be a little more optimistic. <clears throat> and I think I've outlined what individual people can do. <clears throat> they have to understand their healthcare system very well. They have to understand their hospital systems very well before they get sick, if possible. Now, nobody cares about this stuff until something freaking happens and they get the huge bill. And they have to understand what their insurance is in America and what, what they're vulnerable to. And you know, I mean, we got these poor kids that are making $50,000 a year and they don't understand that 10,000 of it is going to healthcare. Whether they see it or not, it's going through the federal programs and through their tax and through their corporate program. They say, well, my company pays for healthcare, I'm okay. But it's still, it's still just incredibly expensive. So there are things that could be done on a systemic level, but the, I, I, they're so, I, I've described the financial forces. Please, please don't say anything that uh, is going to send any assassins after you. We don't want any, don't say anything uh, too bad about some of these companies. Uh, we, we want your health and happiness to continue, but 
But aside from that, what what could you start to speak about? Well, you may have noticed that everything I've said has been a quote. So it's yeah. all derivative, right? It's none, nothing I say is original. So as I certainly, they, you know, in California, we have slap suits against uh, libel, you know, for people that falsely. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm not concerned about any of that stuff. And I think that whatever risks I, I have to to myself, I'm, I'm willing to take because, um, as I said, I think I feel like we're getting cannibalized here. Um, but, you know, I can give you some examples of things that could be done on a federal level. But you have to understand, as I outlined earlier, the power of the people who are working against us is it's much bigger than the federal government, much bigger than any interest. And these the lobbies in Congress are they're the healthcare lobbies are the biggest lobbies in Congress and they run the whole show. They don't run the state governments all of them. They run some of them, but um, they, they run the federal uh, Congress and Senate. So, I mean, just to give you an example of the things that would uh, would work is you could take all these medications off patent and destroy the patent system, right? And that would slow down the whole thing. Now, that's not that's never going to fly. I mean, these people, these people are never going to allow that. There's all kinds of uh, arguments that they can mount against that. Um, if they, many other countries have most of their drugs over the counter. If these things were over the counter and off patent, um, it, it, it would be an entirely different situation. And it's been done successfully elsewhere. I'm not suggesting that we take opioids and put them over the counter or amphetamines or antipsychotics, which we haven't gotten into. All those things should be locked tight and available only by with some sort of supervision. And I'm not sure this prescription system is the best. Um, but I, I think the ultimate thing for your listeners if they read my books and they understand the material, they need to start thinking about their philosophy about healthcare. So you have to develop independence and you also need to understand that the doctor can't save your life in all cases. And you got that very clearly about your shoulder. I mean, this guy told you to go home and eat some Motrin and that's not unreasonable. Maybe he should have said you needed range of motion exercises and that you should only consider a shoulder replacement if you were desperate, right? And if your motion limitation was terrible and you can't wipe your, your backside, right? That's, that's when you get your shoulder replacement. Um, but uh, short of that, um, uh, you, you understood the situation as well as he did. So, um, so that, that, that's, I mean, I've got a lot of stuff about uh, systemic, systemic uh, 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 cures, right. For healthcare in my book. Um, but, um, I mean, other people have tried to do this. Stephen Brill wrote a book, um, that said the large hospitals should in include, um, insurance in their services and Kaiser Permanente down here in LA and the West coast of the United States. Um, they have, uh, bonded together the insurance companies, the doctors and the hospital systems. And in theory, they're all working together to create an effective cost effect, uh, cost, cost reasonable system. Right. But they have problems. Yeah. There, there's certainly no, uh, they're, they're an health maintenance organization. So arguably their incentive is to reduce care. Right. Whereas yeah. the incentive of the whole rest of the system is to increase care as much as possible and build the heck out of it. Right. So yeah. that's the problem. Both sides, neither one of them works perfectly. Kaiser is a reasonable system um, uh, with limits. You know, there are problems with yeah. Kaiser. So, wow. <laughs> OK, so what what has become clear to me is that because I I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking, OK, so we need to take more of an active approach to our Your own, own health care. We've got to you for the listeners, you've got to be reading, you've got to learn 
you've got to have some sort of basis to have a conversation with the doctors, with the healthcare professionals, so that you can go down that and make a make an educated decision, understanding that they're going to be specialists. And at the same time, I'm also hearing, Robert, I'm hearing that uh, it this is very much like the financial education conversation. People are always saying, oh, we need to have more financial education in the school system. Um, and uh, it sounds like, oh, we need to have more healthcare uh, information in the school system just for people, just the same way they teach try to teach about a budget, they need to teach something about your own healthcare. But I got to tell you, I'm actually not much of an advocate for financial education in the school systems anymore. I used to be. And then I realized that uh, by the time you get the, the type of information that's needed to people, it's gone through such a standardizing process to get it into all the textbooks across the country so that someone can teach it so that all that stuff can get out there that um, it's a watered down version and it usually sets someone up to be um, subconsciously incompetent. They, they don't even know what they don't know. You you know what I mean? Like the the there's the difference between conscious incompetence, which I think a lot of us know right now. We do not know. We're not. We know that we're not competent. And and so we look to the doctors. But I it almost seems like, hey, if we started doing more of this, we started teaching some healthcare, care, helping people with that stuff, then they would just become unconsciously incompetent because it seems like. There are so many games that are getting played in behind the scenes that can we really get ahead of it? And I and I almost think that there's maybe just a small subsection of the population that's going to be able to get this. It's criminal activity by sociopaths. That's how you have to regard it. And the, the educational system and the, the academics and the medical academics in particular are some of the worst elements. I mean, there it's just an outrage. It's, I'm ashamed of my colleagues. I'm just completely ashamed of them, with a few exceptions. Yeah. I mean, we've wow. got... Now, now we've we're got just talking about burning down the system. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, look. I mean, obviously, there's... I think I think what we have to do is bring... Um, shed light on it. That's that's the only thing we can yeah. do as commentators. Yeah. I'm going to... If you want, I can describe how... That, the, that is a great... That is a great point. Uh, and because I think one of the things with the show, Leadership to Wealth, we we take on that someone has to take leadership right of themselves if you when it comes to wealth whether it be financial family fitness any of these areas it starts with leading yourself and you can't tie yourself into the national narrative you can't tie yourself into that that overall agenda you really have to look at what's best for you and i think what you're really pointing to is the need for us to take responsibility for, well, our own life, literally. I And you brought up um, wealth. I don't make a dime on this stuff. And you can mm -hmm. get these books for 4 or $5 on uh, Amazon on the ebook, which is what I recommend because then you can click through the links. And, and does, uh, now I know that you're, uh, obviously you practice medicine in the States. How relevant is all of this for someone, say, in Canada? 
gosh, I think it's tremendously relevant. I think okay. it's tremendously relevant. You can understand. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm retired, so I don't practice medicine anymore. But uh, I I I have a better grasp of it now than I did four years ago because I studied it full time. You can't imagine what doctors are subjected to, between patting people on the back, reassuring them, uh, trying to explain things to laymen, and documentation, and trying to manage their office staff. It's just completely consuming. So to to for uh, it's hard for me to blame anyone who doesn't yeah. completely understand this. But I've if you guys go through the links, I think you'll be able to get it pretty quickly. Yeah. Now let me, as a Canadian, let me ask you. Um, you've practiced medicine in the states. You obviously know a little bit, uh, at least, about our Canadian healthcare yeah. system. And this conversation is always had on the political level, what, what, as for you, as a retired doctor, what do you think of the Canadian healthcare system? Okay. So <clears throat> let me translate that into the question of what do I think about universal healthcare for the United States? Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, okay. that's really the question here. And that's what everybody asks me. And yeah. it, you have to understand <clears throat> that we have a perverse mixture of socialism and, um, and capitalism that has produced this outrageous waste and outrageous behavior by the providers and everyone else. So, and we do have three systems in the United States that are related to your system, right? We've got the Indian healthcare system. We've got the veterans administration system and we got Medicare, the first two of which are clear failures and the Medicare. I mean, people would argue that it's the best. It certainly protects patients financially the best. Um, but it's a, it's a mess too on, on many levels. So I don't think that it's going to be easy for us to uh, flip a switch and uh, translate into any kind of other universal care or anything else. And I, you're going to have to answer the question is what do, what do Canadians think about their own healthcare system? And for what I understand, they, they are less than completely enthusiastic about it. And sometimes they come to the United States for care, but I, I don't, I don't have any personal experience or knowledge about it. Right. Well, I can, I can say for the most part, most Canadians are happy that, you know, most things are covered. You know, you don't have these emergency bills, you, you by and large. But when but if you do have the financial resources, then by and large, Canadians are like, what? Why is it that in most parts of the world I can go in and I can get this type of uh, medical care? But in Canada, I've got to be put on a waiting list and sit around and wait for who knows how long to to get anything. And you guys only have 10% of your GDP uh, tied up in, in healthcare services. Yeah. Yeah. And we have 20. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely insane. I mean, if yeah. you th if you think about the burdens we carry around, this is, uh, Warren Buffett said that healthcare is a tapeworm of American business, right? In other mm. words, it's, and he said that it's, it's, it, it's keeping us from being competitive on the international Wow. Yeah. Can I ask you a, a, a question along those lines? Because you just sparked something for me. Is and should healthcare be the responsibility of the government? Should that even be under the government's purview? Well, that's sort of an individual philosophy. And the, the problem yeah. with that question is that um, we are so far down this road yeah. that I don't think we are in a position to reverse the course change the uh, freight liner and, and move it back towards an individual responsibility thing. Yeah. The whole thing has become so mechanized and so expensive that um, uh, certainly our less fortunate people can't afford it. So I, I think it's well, certainly... Well, just think about this, Robert. A hundred years ago, one, 
one lifetime ago, everybody was responsible for their own health care. Yeah, it's the whole thing. It's it's tremendously superior to what it was back then. I mean, we've got all right. kinds <laughs> of improvements that, yes, that we're absolutely. paying for. So yeah, I, I and we're so far we, down. We were dying road. of headaches, right? Like of a fever. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, who knows? But a lot of things that aren't problems now, uh, including parasitic diseases treated with ivermectin yeah. and probably things like COVID that essentially are not a problem now with the right treatment. Um, yeah. we, you know, they, they were if COVID existed back then, it would have killed a lot of people, probably. Right. Well, I, I think one of the one of the one of the things that we see is that we now have a transportation system that was not around previously, right? Like we it's incredible. All now, if someone had gotten, if a country had gotten COVID, it would have stayed in that country. And, uh, you know, whatever would have happened to that country would have happened to that country. But now, uh, who is it? Bruce Willis, uh, army of the 12 monkeys, you know, and they were yeah. talking about pandemics traveling back and forth through airplanes and we've got people going back and forth now. And so now all of a sudden what would normally have just been isolated to one country is now a global, a global pandemic first time in the world. And we're seeing it, the ripple effects in so many areas. And I think they're, if not orchestrated and I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but if not orchestrated, definitely they're, they're taking advantage of it. The conspiracy theorist term itself has been used for 50 to 70 years by the left to describe anyone who's critical of their of uh, of their uh, their their issues. So, um, you know, China restricted their internal flights after they knew what was going on or they released the virus or whatever happened and they didn't restrict the flights to the U.S. So we got all these flights into into the U.S. that spread it. And now we have. We have 5% of the population and 25% of the fatalities in the world due to the mismanagement. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Wow. Wow. Robert, this was uh, very sobering. Um, and, and, and at the same time, uh, it's really enlightening to, to just look at it and go, all right, I have to take responsibility for my own health care is that's exactly is really the message. What, that that that's what I'm hearing loud and clear. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, okay. So y let's let's just talk. What what's before we talk about what's next? If people want to uh, get more from you, if they want to read your book, if they want to uh, get more in contact with you, how do they do that? Okay. So you know these books are everywhere. Books are sold. It's easy to get them on Amazon. And uh, one's called Hormone Secrets. The other is called Butchered by Healthcare. And mm -hmm. you can look on my website. It's robertyohoauthor.com. And I actually, this is essentially a, a passion project for me. So half of these books are available on audio. And you can you can listen on YouTube or download them on, uh, on another. Uh, you can listen to them on a, a podcast platform like this. 50% uh, of the books, chapter by chapter. So if you like to audio, you can do that. You can also download half of the entire ebook over there and see if you like it. It's not any 10% like Amazon. Yeah. So, okay. So now what's the, what's next? What's the goal? Where, where are you headed? I mean, I know that you're actively speaking out about this. Where, where are you trying to get to uh, with, with this message? 
Well, you, you know, Neil, you understand, I mean, you've, you've got a, a significant podcast platform as I understand it, and you understand what it took to get, to get where you are and how difficult it is to get, uh, it even more widely. Uh, um, so I am an amateur. I'm 68. I don't have tech experience. I don't, I'm not even on Facebook, right? I, I'm not, you know, I got a few old videos on YouTube about my medical practice. But, um, I, you know, I am attempting to network and I am within uh, one contact of these people, or in some cases, I have met online these people that I reference in the uh, in, in my thing. And the two easiest uh, ones to uh, grasp are the podcasts by uh, Peter Bregan, B-R-E-G-G-I-N, and RFK Jr. has a tremendous website and get on his mailing list and you'll be updated daily on on the, the insanity that's happening. I, 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 I don't think we're in, in, in good shape, but it does seem like this thing was launched prematurely so we have a chance to uh, prevail. And I mean, I can't imagine what these uh, predators, and that's what Peter Bregan calls these mm. forces, would gain by the destruction of uh, the rule of law or the commerce in America. Because ultimately, if if China is in charge, those the, the billions, the billionaires are going to be no more or they're going to be subsumed by the by the influences there. It's, it, it, it. So I, I know this sounds it sounds like it's too much. And for the naive listener here, um, you're going to have to look through the, the links to uh, to really understand why mm-hmm. I'm saying what I'm saying. Well, I. You know, I, what I would share with you uh, that I sorry, what I share with you is that as we've gotten older, um, it affords you a certain amount of freedom to be able to speak out about things that perhaps you might not have wanted to speak out before or we were too busy thinking about other things, right? Like w- this this podcast, is, we don't monetize it, right? We don't charge anyone for it. And, uh, and so as a result, we're able to speak freely about uh, whatever it is that we think is important and needs to get out there, especially in the financial sectors. Um, and now here we're talking in, in the health sectors. You and I have this luxury because most of our career, most of my career is behind me, right? And so, uh, and they, and quite frankly, the forces that would have tried to push us down just don't have the same control. Now the controls that are out there that they would have would be censorship and uh, trying to limit limit your ability to broadcast. So um, I, I do, I definitely am on side with you in terms of uh, let's be out there, be a voice, and uh, understanding that the people that are willing to educate themselves, take the responsibility for their lives, are going to be able to verify this and be able to, you know, benefit from it at the end of the day. You have to take agency. That's the word mm. I think. Agency for your own life. That's the critical yes. thing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Robert, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. and. Now, before I end it, is there is there anything that we we should have touched on that we didn't touch on here at this time? Well, um, you know, I wrote my second book about or about the uh, uh, bioidentical hormones, and uh, yeah. even people in your age group, which, which uh, you know, uh, your early fifties that we said, uh, late late forties, late forties, late forties, um, yeah. many times can benefit from hormonal supplementation. I think the women in particular, I, my experience with women is bigger than my experience with men, 
but, and I mean, I started, I didn't even charge these women. They, they came in, they paid me enough for the cosmetic surgery. I gave my services free for free. And I was, some of them were interested and some of them weren't, but I, I would give them a testosterone pellet, which would last two and a half months to three months. And this breaks down to estrogen. And so they got the benefit of hormonal therapy for several months. And it was, I was able to convince some of them that it was a good idea for them. It's such a profound thing that estrogen for women over 50, that some of the studies have said that it would prevent 80% of Alzheimer's disease. And you may know wow. Alzheimer's disease is the most expensive disease in, in medical care if you count long-term care costs. And mm -hmm. so instead of this, we are using prescription drugs that cost $1,000, $2,000 a month and that don't work. I mean, if they do work, it's subtle. Even the people that developed them can't claim it, they work very well. And mm -hmm. the studies are likely adulterated just the way all the other pharma studies are adulterated. So um, I put a um, a uh, uh, appendix in this thing with 75 references about the estradiol for women. And so that's the quick story I tell about this. And yeah. uh, testosterone for you would help too. And I will send you ways to download these complete versions for free. Wow. Thank you. Uh, now, listen, I would love to, <laughs> I'd love to have you back again and have that conversation alone because it is, I think that's, that's a great conversation in and of itself. Um, you know, as we're aging, I literally was on a conversation maybe uh, an hour ago, uh, just before we we spoke. And um, a friend of mine said to me, I, I want to know how to get younger. I want to know how to um, uh, he I kid you not. He said, I want to know how to get better. Maybe even instead of getting gray hair, I want to know how to get uh, more hair in my hair darker again. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. But uh, I said, I'm sure there's something out there that can benefit us. And, and so I'm not saying that. that you're telling us how to regrow hair, but. Yeah, to address that, the gray hair, white hair thing. Now, these are anecdotes, uh, but I've been in a room where I talked to people who said they were true. Melatonin, taking the right doses, sometimes turns your hair back to dark, right, from white. Wow. So that's a crazy story. And I'm sure it doesn't happen to everyone. I can't stand the stuff. It gives me funny dreams. But uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, that's one of the hormone secrets. There are okay. Love it. Love it. Well, Robert, I, I definitely would love to have you come back, uh, have a conversation about that, because there's so many things that you can talk about just on that alone. And it'll give me a chance to read the book before I have you back on and uh, and then have that discussion with a little bit more education. And uh, but I really want to thank you for your time today. Th thanks so much, Neil. Thank you, Robert. Take care.